Amen. Thank you, band. Thank you, church, for being here to worship this morning. I'd invite you to take a copy of God's Word and find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've been reading through the New Testament together this year. We've come to a part in the New Testament where the books are shorter, and we don't get to spend quite as much time in each of these books as we move through five chapters a week. If you were here this last Wednesday or if you caught the podcast online, you heard Corey preach on Colossians chapter 4. That's going to be our only stop in the book of Colossians. We're just sort of going to pass over everything else Paul says to the church in Colossae. We looked at the book of Colossians not that long ago as a church family. We went through it beginning to end. And so this morning we're going to jump into 1 Thessalonians. And I want to start with a quick word about Paul and the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a free city in the Roman Empire. Uh, Not all cities were free cities. Uh, Only cities of significance were given some measure of self-governance. It was a provincial capital, and it was located on a major trade highway. This was a, a major economic force in ancient Rome. And unlike many of the cities that we read about in the New Testament, that if you were to travel to this part of the world today, you would find only ruins, Thessalonica is a thriving city still today. It's a major economic force, no longer in ancient Rome, but now in the modern nation state of Greece. So this is a big, large economic powerhouse of a city. Paul ended up in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Thessalonica was his first stop after leaving Philippi. So we won't turn to the book of Acts. I'll just draw your attention to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul takes off on his second missionary journey. He's not traveling with Barnabas on this trip. He's traveling with Silas and with Timothy. Their first stop was supposed to be Asia, but God redirected their trip, and He sent them to Macedonia, and they ended up in Philippi. They met Lydia. They met a slave girl who was possessed by a demon. They met the jailer. All of these people put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that got Paul in trouble. Paul and Silas ended up in prison, and when they let him out the next day, the local authorities basically said, we want you to leave town, and so he left. And his next stop was the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, this major economic city, this city with a large Jewish population, they had a synagogue. Paul rolls into town and he begins talking about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Acts 17 tells us that Paul only stayed in Thessalonica for three or four weeks, three Sabbaths. We don't know how much time on either side of those Sabbaths, so three or four weeks he was in Thessalonica. The book of Acts also tells us that in that short period of time, many people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And in the book of Acts, Luke does not always say many people came to faith in Jesus in this town, but he makes a point in Thessalonica to say many people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. They became followers of Jesus. They became members of this church in Thessalonica. Unfortunately, what happened in Philippi happened in Thessalonica. People got upset. They literally formed a mob. They hauled off Christians, threw them into prison, demanded that they pay bail money to be let out and promised to keep the peace. And the church said to Paul, we think you should leave. It's not because we don't like you. It's not because we don't love you. It's not that we don't want to listen to you preach and teach. We just think you're the lightning rod. 
And so we think you need to move on down the road. And Paul did just that. He went to Berea, and then he went to Athens, and then he ended up in Corinth. And at some point along the way, he said to Timothy, Timothy, I think you ought to go back and check on the church in Thessalonica. I'm worried about them. Things were tense when we left. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica, and Paul was concerned for this church. So he sent Timothy back. Timothy visited the church. Timothy came back to Paul and said, Paul, they're doing great. Things are really, really good. Not perfect, but they're really, really good. And when Paul heard that response from Timothy, he wrote this letter, the book that we call 1 Thessalonians. Now, our passage is chapter 1, verse 2 to 10, is a very simple passage. The big idea is very straightforward, very, very simple. Paul thanked God for the church in Thessalonica. The whole passage that we're about to read is essentially a prayer. Paul prayed, and it's a prayer of thanksgiving where Paul is thanking, not the church, but God for the church in Thessalonica. Our aim this morning is very simple. This is not a complicated passage. It is not a complicated sermon. Our aim is to listen to how Paul prayed for this church. As we listen to how Paul prayed for this church, maybe we could learn something about how we ought to pray for our church. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. So there's something in here. There's a lot of stuff in here that we need to take away and we need to say, you know what, if that's how Paul prayed for that church, we certainly ought to pray this way for our church. And in listening to this prayer, inspired by the Spirit, hopefully we come away with an understanding of what it is that God wants to see happen in His church. So take your copy of the Scriptures. We'll read the passage and then we'll ask God to bless the reading of His Word. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned... To God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we are thankful. 
for who you are and for all that you've done for us. Lord, we're thankful to be gathered together for worship, thankful for the uh, people who were baptized this morning, for the work that you've started in their life and their willingness to proclaim their faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, We're grateful for the gift of music, where we can gather together and lift your praises and sing your praises. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray this morning that as we look at Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica, that we might learn how to pray for our church, for other churches, and that we might learn what it is you desire from your church, what you want to see happen, what fruit you want to see harvested in your church. Lord, guide us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Labor Day is behind us which means when you look at the American calendar and you think about the next big holiday that's coming up, really it's Thanksgiving. And I don't mean to slight Columbus Day or Veterans Day or maybe Halloween is your cup of tea. All those things are on the calendar, but the next big American holiday is Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving certainly qualifies as a big, major American holiday holiday. Businesses will close, the kids will be out of school, some of them for a whole week, and millions of American families will gather together and they will celebrate Thanksgiving in very, very similar ways. More than likely, when you gather together with friends or family on Thanksgiving, you will gather together and you will eat a lot of food. Maybe you like to have turkey on Thanksgiving, maybe you don't like turkey and you want to have ham, or maybe you're non-traditional and you go with a brisket or tacos or whatever it may be. I don't know what you eat on Thanksgiving, but you're going to get together with family and friends and you're going to have a lot of food. You're also going to hopefully take a nap. You've earned it. Take a nap. Be thankful that God has given you a day to rest. Hopefully, you're going to watch the Dallas Cowboys win a football game on Thanksgiving. Fingers crossed, hopefully. And maybe you'll do some Black Friday shopping, planning, what store you're going to go to, how early you're going to wake up, all that sort of stuff. But Thanksgiving is certainly a major American holiday. Now, I think as Christians you and I probably take for granted the fact that on Thanksgiving, we are giving thanks to God. That's just sort of understood. It's just sort of assumed by many of us. There's good reason to assume that. If you look back in history, if you look at the pilgrims in the 1600s, the first Thanksgiving, the proto-Thanksgiving they celebrated at Plymouth, they were certainly directing their thanks to God for bringing them safely to a new place and providing for them. 1789, George Washington, father of a new nation, officially suggested that Americans might consider a day set aside to give thanks to the Creator. Abraham Lincoln made an official proclamation that we should, as American people, set aside a day and we should give thanks to God for the blessings that He poured into our lives. The United States government made this official. It may surprise you how late this is in the timeline, but it became official in 1941. It became an actual American federal holiday, Thanksgiving, and the Congress passed the law and the President signed it, and they said that you're going to celebrate Thanksgiving on the 4th, Thursday of November. Now, just a fun fact, interesting for those of us who are proud to be Texans, 
The state of Texas had already passed laws that said Thanksgiving was to be celebrated on the last Thursday of November, which means that into the 50s there were people in the state of Texas not celebrating Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday, but on those years where there was a fifth Thursday saying we will celebrate Thanksgiving whenever we feel like celebrating Thanksgiving and we don't care what the government tells us to do. We're going to go on the last Thursday. So a little Texan pride for you there. Thanksgiving. We just assume in all of that history that what we're doing, we assume this for good reason, is that we're giving thanks to God for the blessings He's poured into our lives. Not everyone shares that assumption. Increasingly, we live in a secular culture that is divorcing thanksgiving from the concept of God. In fact, there is a group in the United States known as the American Humanist Association. These are people who do not believe that there is a God. They believe that human beings are the highest evolved life form and the pinnacle of what exists in the universe. And they made a proclamation saying thanksgiving is a uniquely secular holiday as gratitude is a universal human emotion. I would agree with them that gratitude is a universal human emotion, that at some point in time, most people feel some sense of gratitude or thanksgiving for something in their life, towards someone in their life. But I would also say that if you are really a secular humanist, if you really do not believe that there is a Creator God in heaven, and you really believe that life on earth is simply the result of millions of years of chemical reactions that began in the beginning way, way back. We're not sure how it began. It just began. We're not sure where all this matter came from. It just came from somewhere. And we've just been rolling through the eons, chemical reaction after chemical reaction to get to where we are today. And there is no God who created everything or who rules over everything. I'm not sure that the act of giving thanks makes a lot of sense. Now, the American Humanist Association says, well, you feel this thanksgiving, this gratitude in your heart, and if you're going to eat turkey, you should give thanks to the turkey. He died so you could eat it, and if you're with friends and family, you should give thanks to your friends and your family because you get to be with them and you care about them. But again, I would simply say that if you don't believe there is a Creator, and if you don't think that there is a God who rules over His creation, the very act of giving thanks for things that you experience as the result of endless, countless chemical reactions is a nonsensical act of thanksgiving. Christian people are people who understand what thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving, in the truest, most biblical sense, is directing our minds and our hearts to God and thanking Him, expressing gratitude to Him for who He is and for what He's done in our lives. The fascinating thing about this passage, and it's seen in several of Paul's letters to his churches, is that he gives thanks, not to the church in Thessalonica, but he gives thanks to God for the church in Thessalonica. I want you to look with me and try to answer this question. Why did Paul thank God for the church in Thessalonica? Why didn't he just thank 
them? Why was his thanksgiving directed to God when he thought about his friends back in Thessalonica? The first reason is this. The church in Thessalonica was convicted of sin and convicted about truth. These people had come under conviction of sin. So deep of conviction that Paul says they turned from idols to serve the one true God. That's repentance. Turning from and turning to. Turning from idolatry and sin and turning to the one true God in faith. It's a biblical picture of repentance. And true repentance is something that only happens in the life of a person who has been convicted of their sin. They've also been convinced that what Paul had to say about Jesus was true. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. He says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Literally, that word means you were completely, thoroughly convinced that what we said about Jesus really was gospel truth. Convicted of sin and convicted about the truth. You and I live in a world that is just about done with conviction. That really has no place for conviction of sin or conviction about something being true. There's a Jewish, not a Christian, but a Jewish sociologist named Philip Reif. He died just a few years ago. He wrote all sorts of things, observing people, watching people, studying sociological uh, processes and psychological processes. And he made the observation, perhaps better than anyone, that today we live, this is his term, in a therapeutic age. A therapeutic age. Therapeutic age says that whatever you feel in your heart Whatever you feel in your innermost person ought to be affirmed and celebrated and never corrected. Therapeutic age says to us that there is no absolute truth for you to be convinced of. You simply need to be convinced of whatever you think and feel in your own heart and what might work for you. And anyone who says there is something absolutely true, exclusively true, eternally true, universally true, is simply trying to exercise power over you. Now, Rife saw this coming through the 80s and the 90s into the 2000s. Where we stand today in the 2020s is the reality that there are many places on the North American continent where the job of a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist is to simply affirm what the patient thinks, says, feels, does. In fact, there are places today on the North American continent where it is illegal for a counselor, therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist to try to bring anyone to the point of conviction that they're doing something sinful, and it is illegal to try to convince somebody that there is an absolute truth that they ought to submit their lives to. The job of the counselor and the therapist has been reduced to simply affirming whoever or whatever they're presented with. 
biblical Christianity is built on a different foundation. It's built on a foundation of conviction of sin and being convinced and convicted that the good news about Jesus is actually true. Jesus himself in John 16 talked about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things Jesus said about the Spirit is, I'm going to send him, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I can't bring anyone to conviction. You can't bring anyone to conviction. I can't convince anyone about the truth of Jesus. You can't convince anyone about the truth of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit can do all of those things. And that's a baseline bedrock experience of Christian faith. Conviction of sin and being convinced that the good news about Jesus is true. Listen, Paul looked at the church in Thessalonica. And he said, I've seen that you're convicted of sin. You turned from idols to serve the living God. And I know that you are convinced, fully convinced, that what we had to say was not just the word of man, but is actually the word of God. And Paul knew, if you experience that kind of conviction, it's because the Holy Spirit was at work in you. So he thanked, not the church, but God, who sends his spirit to bring conviction on sinful people. He thanked God for the conviction that took place in the church at Thessalonica. Secondly, why is he thankful? He's thankful because the church in Thessalonica was marked by faith, love, and hope. It's the classic triad of Christian virtues. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians 13. you find it in Colossians 1 if you've just read through Colossians 1. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, number one, your work of faith, number two, your labor of love, and number three, your steadfastness of hope. All of those centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is our assurance that unseen things are true things what the author of the book of Hebrews says. It's our assurance that the things we haven't seen, we can't see about the Lord Jesus Christ, about God, about salvation, about sin, that they are true things. We have faith in what we've not seen. Love is our love for God, and it's our love for other people. It's the two great commandments as Jesus summarized them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Hope is the conviction that God will be true to His promise. It's not like the hope that the Dallas Cowboys might win tonight. It's very iffy. You never know. Probably going to be disappointed. I hope they win. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the steadfast conviction and assurance that God will be true to His Word and He'll keep His promises. Paul looked at this church and he said, I see your faith, I see your love, and I see you have hope. He did not thank them for those virtues. He thanked God for those virtues. Why? Well, Ephesians 2 says that faith is the gift of God. It's not something you manufacture on your own. God gives that gift. So he thanked God for that gift. 
Galatians 5 says that love is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you manufacture on your own. It's something that the Holy Spirit works in you and through you. So he thanked God for that gift. 1 Peter 1 says God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We don't cause ourselves to be born into hope. God causes us to be born into hope. All of these things come from God, not from us. So when Paul saw them in the life of this church, he didn't thank them for these virtues. He thanked God for what he had done in the lives of these people. Number three, why is he giving thanks? It's because the church in Thessalonica followed Paul's example, and they became an example for others. We won't spend a lot of time here. This is verse 5, 6, 7, 8. Notice in verse 6, he says that you, the Thessalonians, became imitators of us. You followed our example. And then notice in verse 7, he says, you became an example to all the other churches in your region. This is just basic Christianity 101. It's basic discipleship 101. When you lead someone to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, we're going to follow Jesus. And they say, well, how do you do that? And you say, do what I do. Just follow me. And they learn, and they watch, and they follow, and they grow. And before long, you look up, and other people are following them. It's discipleship. Every Christian needs an example to follow, and every Christian at some point ought to be an example for someone else to follow. And Paul looked at this church, and he said, it's happening. You started off, you followed our example, but now you're the example for all the other churches in the area. Your faith has been proclaimed in all this region. People hear and they know who you are and what you stand for and how you live. You followed an example, and now you are the example. Okay, For all of that stuff, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God for you. We give thanks to God for you. Why? Conviction of sin being convinced of the truth, faith, love, hope, and discipleship. It's all being reproduced. And Paul thanks God for that. You could say Paul is thankful for the spiritual fruit that's being harvested in this church. The harvest has come in. Paul went to town. He planted a gospel seed. Timothy went back, he watered the gospel seed, but God was the one who gave the growth. God was the one who gave the growth so that there would be this harvest. Now, one last thing we need to talk about. When I look at this harvest, conviction of sin, being convinced of the truth, faith, love, hope, and discipleship. I'd say we would take some of that right here. That sounds like a pretty good plan for a church. Let's feel conviction of sin. Let's be convinced that this book is true. Let's have faith in the gospel. Let's love God and love each other. Let's have hope that God will keep His promises. And let's reproduce. Let's make disciples. That sounds like a pretty good harvest to me. I think that's what God intends to reap from His churches. One more question. If that's the harvest that we want to reap, what needs to be planted? 
Because the law of the harvest says you reap what you sow. So my question is to step back from what Paul is giving thanks for, this spiritual harvest, to step back one level and to say, what was it that was planted in that church? Because if you plant that and it leads to this, we want to plant the same thing here. Whatever Paul planted in Thessalonica and grew to fruition, that's what we want to plant here at Emmanuel and pray that God would give the growth. So, one more question. What was the gospel message that Paul proclaimed in Thessalonica? First and second is that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and it was necessary that Jesus would suffer and die. Paul marched into this town, and he said, there is a Messiah, there is a Christ, and His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And it was necessary that He suffer and die. You can see this if you flip back in your Bible, and I'll put it up on the screen, to Acts chapter 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This is the first thing that Paul planted in this town, in these people. It's the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Messiah. The Greek word is He's the Christ. Literally, those words mean He's the anointed one. He is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. He speaks the truth as a prophet. He gives His life as a sacrifice as the priest, and He rules over His people as the king. He's the promised one, the one promised in the Old Testament who would come to save His people from their sins and to establish a kingdom that would never, never be shaken. And Paul says, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And it was necessary, not just that He come, it was necessary that He suffer and die. Why was it necessary? It's necessary because the Bible says that God is holy, and the Bible says that we are sinners. And it is simply not possible for a holy, just, righteous God to wink at our sin. There will, no, will be no lifting the rug of heaven and simply sweeping our sin underneath, lowering the rug and saying, let's pretend that never happened. It would be a complete violation of the central character of God in His holiness. What is required is a payment, a death. That's why Jesus came. That's why the Messiah came, to suffer and to die, not for His sins, for our sins. This is what Paul planted in this church. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, and it was necessary that He suffer and die. Thirdly and fourthly, Jesus was raised from the dead and He will return from heaven. 
and He will deliver His people from the wrath of God that's coming on the world. Yes, He suffered. Yes, He died. But He was also raised from the dead, and He will come back in power and glory. And when He comes back in power and glory, He will deliver His people from the wrath of God that's coming on the world. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'll be honest with you, there are commentaries, commentators, who look at this verse, verse 10, and they say that what Paul is talking about is that at the end, right before a period of great tribulation, Jesus will secretly come back and snatch His people off of this earth before things get really, really bad here. I don't think that's at all what Paul's talking about in verse 10. In fact, if you read First and Second Thessalonians, I don't think there's a hint or a whiff that God is going to exempt His people from suffering and affliction this side of eternity. He says in First Thessalonians 1 verse 6, we just read it, you received the word in much affliction. It wasn't easy when you signed up to follow Jesus. And if you peek ahead to chapter 3 verse 3, Paul says they are destined for affliction. God has destined that they experience affliction and suffering. There's no hint that they're going to miss out on all of that. What Paul's talking about in verse 10 isn't some idea that you're going to get zapped out of here before a great tribulation. It's that when the Lord Jesus comes back in power and glory to judge the living and the dead and to pour His wrath out on those who dwell upon the earth, His people will be delivered from the wrath to come. You understand that wrath is what you and I deserve as sinful people who have sinned against a holy God. We deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us. But we are convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He suffered and He died for us. That the wrath of God was poured out on Him so that when He returns, we might be delivered from the wrath of God. It's a very simple passage. Paul looks at this church and he sees that there's a spiritual harvest taking place. They're convicted of sin. They're convinced about the truth of the gospel. They're filled with faith and love and hope. They're reproducing and making disciples who are bearing all of this same harvest. And Paul steps back from that and he thanks God, not them, but God, for what he's doing in them and through them. There's a picture here for us to follow, a pattern for us to follow. That if we would like to see this kind of harvest here, we'd better make sure we plant the right kind of seed now seed of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He suffered and died, 
bearing the wrath of God in our place, that He was raised from the dead, He will return in power and glory, and when He does, He will deliver His people from the wrath to come.